0: In Paris in 1953, one of the strangest and most popular plays of the 20th century premiered, Waiting for Godot, written by the Irish writer Samuel Beckett.
1: Godot was the play that made Beckett uh, uh, without question. It it was really almost immediately uh, successful.
0: Its success was surprising, given its many unusual qualities. For one, it is a play where nothing seems to happen. Also, it was written in French, which was not Beckett's native language. In addition, it was his first play produced on stage. Not everyone loved it. Some people reportedly stormed out of the premiere. But overall, it was well-received.
1: He nonetheless garnered a couple of good early reviews and very quickly uh, became a subject of conversation in Paris such that everybody wanted to go to see uh, En attendant Godot at the time, and then there were quickly requests for productions elsewhere, leading him to a a fame that he never felt comfortable with. He remained a very private individual. My name is Peter Connor. I teach French and comparative literature at Barnard College in New York.
0: Since the premiere, people have been trying to figure out what this play means. It's been interpreted in countless ways, with no definitive confirmation from Beckett, one way or another.
1: There's an enormous amount of affirmation in Beckett. It's not a literature of negation at all. Uh, It's a literature of lessness. It's also a literature of worseness. He's relentless with, I mean, the second act is worse than the first. Everything tends towards worseness.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Peter Connor to discuss Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Samuel Beckett was born to a wealthy family in Dublin, Ireland in 1906.
1: They had a large Tudor-style family home in uh, an exclusive suburb of Dublin called Fox Rock. Uh, The the house had a name, uh, Kuldryna. It had tennis courts, it had a croquet lawn. Uh, so, he was part of the pro- prosperous Protestant and therefore minority community of uh, Ireland at the time.
0: Growing up Protestant in heavily Catholic Dublin instilled a sense of isolation in Beckett that would remain with him throughout his life.
1: He was educated at uh, Portora Royal School, which was also for Protestants. Ireland was really very segregated at the time. Uh, and that School was in the northern part of Ireland, it was in, in, in Enniskillen, which is about 100 miles north, northwest of Dublin, so he was sent as a boarder away from his family home. He excelled at school, he was a very good student, he was a very good athlete, particularly with, at cricket, he was excellent at cricket, uh, but he was generally very athletic and was interested in sports and played sports.
0: Beckett then enrolled in Trinity College, Dublin, where he studied modern literature and philosophy. After graduating, he taught briefly at Campbell College in Belfast, before becoming a lecturer at the prestigious École Normale Supérieure in Paris. While in Paris, Beckett met the esteemed Irish author James Joyce. They became fast friends, and Beckett ended up helping Joyce with research for his 1939 novel Finnegan's Wake. Throughout this time, Beckett wrote various pieces of his own, including poems, short stories, and essays. After a couple years, he left Paris and got a position as a lecturer back at his alma mater, Trinity College.
1: But his experience of teaching was very displeasing to him. He really didn't like teaching at all. He felt uh, that he was not good at it. Uh, It brought him no pleasure, uh, and so he resigned his position, much to the chagrin of his mother. He resigned that rather prestigious position at uh, Trinity College and remained then in Ireland, living at home, uh, in good surroundings, but in a kind of suffocating atmosphere, suffocating partly because of, uh, well, his, his mother's love was a complicated business for him. Uh, she fussed about him. And he understood, I mean, the the hope had been that uh, Sam would take over the family business. Father was a quantity surveyor, very successful. His father had been a building contractor. There was considerable money at stake. And, you know, Beckett didn't want to do this at all. Eventually his brother, he had an older brother, Frank, who took over the family concern. Beckett knew when he failed at teaching that he wanted to be a writer. So uh, that uh, didn't come about immediately, although he had some early publications. But in the 1930s, he was was trying to find what kind of writer he would be.
0: He continued to write poetry and short stories. In 1931, he published an essay called Proust, which was a critical study of the French novelist Marcel Proust. A couple years later, his father passed away.
1: After his father's death, uh, he had a psychologically difficult time and wanted to do a a psychoanalysis, which was illegal in Ireland at the time, which gives you an idea of what kind of society he was growing up in. So he went to London then. In London, he felt like a complete outsider. Uh, I think that outsider, that feeling of being an outsider uh, accompanied him most of his life. He talks about it in terms of solitude, but it's also tinged with a kind of alienation, and that it probably comes from his his origins as a as a Protestant in Dublin. So, someone who can't really fully identify with the idea of being Irish, fully Irish in uh, uh, in a very traditional sense, that he would have rejected anyway. But mm-hmm. he he didn't feel fully Irish, and he certainly didn't feel English. There, there's a lovely. Uh, anecdote when a a journalist says to him at the beginning of an interview, uh, you're English, Mr. Beckett. And Beckett says, on the contrary. Whatever that (laughs) means. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily mean he's Irish. But the the, the point here, I think, is that he is not really, the, the route of being an Irish writer is neither available to him nor desirable to him. But He's, he's not English or British either, in any sense. So, that cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism that Joyce incarnated for him uh, did seem like a very attractive avenue. And that's what he needed to get back to, and that's what he did get back to in 1937, after, after he, had to, he went on a tour of Germany, which was very influential, influential also for the writing of Wedding for Godot. Uh so after that, then he went and more or less stayed in Paris, or in France in any case, uh, until the end of his life.
0: When Beckett initially settled in Paris in the late 1930s, he was writing mostly prose and writing in English. But his creative process began to change in the years following World War II.
1: There's going to be a dramatic shift that comes after the war when he has a tremendous creative burst uh, that coincides with his decision to switch from writing in English to writing in French, which is rather unexpected. You find instances of the other direction. Writers who write perhaps in a lesser well-known language might wish to write in English to gr- reach a bigger audience, but he had a very, different, very different concerns about language and reservations about the possibility of expressing himself as he wished to in English. Uh, So he made that decision, made that switch, and after the war began writing in French uh, prose still.
0: He quickly wrote three novels in French that are known as his great trilogy, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable.
1: And during that, apparently in order to take some kind of a break from the arduousness of writing this prose in French and working on it, uh, he wrote, Godot, very quickly, in a matter of, of four or five months, uh, he wrote this play. There had been another play, but it was never produced. Uh, Godot is really, is really the start of his theatrical career, so it's his first play. So its success is all the more remarkable uh, in that he wasn't at all experienced in the theater. He had never had a play uh, produced on stage.
0: Before Waiting for Godot, Beckett had achieved some literary success, but he wasn't really able to fully support himself through his writing. So he did translation and other writerly gigs to make ends meet. But Waiting for Godot became such a smash hit that it finally gave Beckett that most elusive condition for artists, financial security. Could you sketch just kind of his post-Godot life till his death?
1: He continued to write prose and uh, theater and uh, what's interesting in the theater I think is how when you think of the radicality of waiting for Godot which was a shock on the Parisian scene which is which is not easy to shock it, was, it was really you, you might think well that there is his major statement. For the theatre, but in fact uh, he had such imaginative powers that this was really only the beginning of a, of a process, uh, which one sees also in his prose. I guess you, I might choose the word lessness to describe it, which is the title of one of his works. He's going to go in the direction of lessness. This is the opposite direction from Joyce. I'm sure you've read some Joyce and you see that Joyce's tendency is to be encyclopedic. You just have to look at the size of Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake to see that he was always adding. And uh, if you look at the proofs, uh, he's adding to the last moment to get more and more in there, more knowledge and so on.
0: Life overfills the cup. It does.
1: And Beckett realized that his way would be really quite opposite to that. Uh, He would go in the direction of blessedness and in the direction of also ignorance and incapacity, inability. He he calls himself at one point uh, a non-knower and a non-canner, a non-knower and a non-canner. He doesn't know and he can't. So he's in this kind of a bind that is inevitably going to lead him to failure and he feels the need to embrace that Failure, and he see, he sees in particularly in artworks. He was very sensitive to painting uh, that the the true artist it will fail. That failure is uh, is integral to the uh, to the artistic uh, task. And he wanted to recognize that. So in his post Godo years, he put that into effect. So if you look at at. Godot, it's a radical play, but it still has some conventions that he was going to challenge and and change. And this is how he, I think he altered the theater uh, in a very profound way, uh, by doing away with a number of conventions that when we go to the theater, we expect to see certain things. We expect to see characters. We expect to see plot. We expect to see, expect to see certain kind of uh, exchanges. And he's going to challenge every single one of those. And he does so already in a quiet way in uh, in Godot, but he can go much further. So if you think, for example, uh, just of, of the human body on the stage, that's something that's going to be subject to the idea of lessness that he wants to put into effect in the next plays. Uh, he'll have plays for example, where the, the body seems to disappear increasingly. In the next play, Endgame, there are two characters who live in trash cans, for example, dustbins. Uh, in subsequent plays, there's going to be less and less of the, of the full human body. Uh, he'll bury characters uh, up to their waist, or uh, Winnie in Happy Days up to her neck in sand. Or there'll be characters who are encased in vases, so you only see their heads. And then there'll be There'll be a play called Not I, which is just a spotlight fixed on a mouse. So all you see is a mouse moving. And then there'll be plays with no characters at all and plays with no words at all. So there's this movement towards lessness.
0: Let's move now to the play itself. So it's famously um, a play about nothing. But could you, for for our listeners, try <laughs> insofar as it's possible to give us a, a kind of uh, Plot summary, or you know, general arc of the story. So, waiting
1: for Godot uh, is—it's a play in which nothing happens twice because there are two acts that essentially mirror each other. In the first act, the scene opens with two rather tramp-like figures, although they're never called tramps, uh, waiting uh, for a character called Godot. And they're passing the time by exchanging words. They don't appear to be saying anything of very great significance to one another, nothing of momentous consequence, nothing that seems to be knitting together some uh, plot or uh, plot line. Uh, At a certain moment, Pozzo and Lucky, the two other main characters in the play, appear. Lucky is Pozzo's slave, Pozzo is taking Lucky to the market to sell him for a good price, he hopes. Lucky is attached to Pozzo by a long rope, uh, which goes around his neck, and uh, responds to commands from Pozzo. Uh, uh, He carries his bags, he carries his chair, and uh, uh, generally acts as his servant or slave. At a certain moment, Pozzo asks Lucky to think, and that produces a very long uh, speech, by far the longest in the play, and it's very strange, Uh, unintelligible, I think, to an audience, unintelligible even now to scholars who have had the opportunity of sitting quietly in their office and reading the play, Uh, (laughs) looks like a parody of professorial discourse uh, at the limit of sense but nonetheless gesturing towards themes that have been evoked uh, between Vladimir and Estragon, the two tramps, um, earlier in the play. Then they go off, a boy comes, and he has a message from Mr. Godot to say that Mr. Godot won't come today, but he'll surely come tomorrow. Uh, Vladimir and Estragon are then alone on the stage. The moon rises. They contemplate it for a moment. They decide that they'll they'll go, because the night has fallen, and they remain nonetheless on the stage. The curtain comes down. Act two opens. Uh, Vladimir sings a song about a dog uh, and death. Uh, Estragon is there too. They exchange words. They go through routines. Uh, um, Potso and Lucky reappear although changed. Pozzo is now blind. Lucky is mute. They move on. A boy appears, a messenger from Monsieur Godot. He's questioned in a rather irritated way by Vladimir, who's becoming increasingly frustrated, appears. And the message is the same as the first message. Monsieur Godot will not come today, but he'll surely come tomorrow. So, The boy leaves, the two are left alone in the stage, the moon rises. They contemplate the possibility of hanging themselves from the sole uh, piece of uh, uh, theatrical equipment on the stage, which is tree, there's a tree on the stage. The the, the directions, it's a country road with a tree, and that's all there is. So they consider this, but they don't have a rope. they say, well, we'll bring a rope tomorrow. They decide that they'll leave. They do not leave, and the curtain falls.
0: While on the surface this might seem to be a play about nothing but waiting, there is a subtlety in the original French title of the play that suggests there is more to it. There's
1: everything that they do while they are waiting for Godot, which is something very stressed in the French version, French title being En attendant Godot and that the first word means while really Beckett dropped it in the translation but that while what you're going to do while you're waiting for something to happen is what the play consists of
0: so enigmatic Um, but somehow it's so brilliantly comic you can't help but smile at it how how has it been read Um, by by scholars and interpreters, literary critics over the years?
1: Well, it's been read in every way imaginable, uh, precisely because it's so uh, stripped down and bare, uh, and uh, there's really not that much there, which I think puts critics into overdrive, because (laughs) it's open to all kinds of interpretations, including the one that would be broadly a religious interpretation that would see in the word uh, "godu" or Godot, uh the word God, even in French that would resonate for a French audience with the idea of God. And of course, together with the theme of waiting, it does look very much like a sort of existentialist or um, even theological meditation on human existence. So, uh, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Beckett himself is of no help here deliberately. He wouldn't say, he says, everything I knew or everything I know about Godot was in the play. If I had known more, I would have put it in. And mm-hmm. there's already enough, and perhaps I could have done, make, made it done with less. So he's, he's not going to provide an answer. Uh, he says if he knew who Godot was, he would have said so in the play. So he, so he knows no more than the characters that, he's, that he has created. He's not in a position of knowing. He's a non-knower on that, too.
0: Waiting for Godot has clear existentialist themes, especially the idea that the world is inherently meaningless or absurd.
1: That evokes uh, Albert Camus, the French writer whose work Beckett would have known very well and who uh, wrote a number of texts that dramatize something like the absurdity of existence. Uh, uh, So there's unquestionably elements there. The idea of, of nothingness that is so central to the play... Uh, it's the first word. The first word is nothing, very characteristically of Beckett, uh, because he felt that he was working with nothing and towards nothing. The first word is nothing, and that that idea of nothing and nothingness was in the, uh, was in the air. Uh, it had been you know, explored by Jean-Paul Sartre, the great existentialist philosopher, and his major work being a nothingness. Uh, It had been explored prior to him by by Heidegger, whose works had been translated in the 30s and were becoming known.
0: A big reason the play is so popular is how relatable it feels for audiences.
1: What is wonderful about the play, I think, is how it it manages to dramatize something essential about the human condition that audiences recognize. That's not easy to do because in order to do so, you really do have to enter into some pretty uh, profound philosophical questions. Without nonetheless uh, resolving those questions, uh, you need to evoke them. And Beckett has the, the talent and the skill and I think the intellectual honesty to do so. And that, that, I think, is what audiences respond to when they go to that play. They see that this is someone who's, a straight, who's dealing very, very straight with them. He's not trying to sell them something. Uh, he's not trying to uh, convince them of something. He's not trying to entertain them. So he's not condescending. He never judges because he doesn't think that he knows anything. And who, <laughs> how would judgment come about here? I think that, that without having any data on this, it's probably the most represented play. And so if people still flock to theatres to see this play, it's because uh, they recognize in the exchanges between Vladimir and Estragon, and in other aspects of the play, something that, uh, that reflects their own experience of life. So no fancy discourse. The only fancy discourse is a parody. It's Lucky's Think. And it's not fancy. It's pathetic. Uh, it's moving. Uh, it's always everything is always given in Beckett with great compassion. I feel. I think that one feels that. But one does need to enter into big questions, and he does that very well. Vladimir and Estragon are in the same situation as we are as theatergoers. They're on the stage, but they're also waiting to be entertained. So when Pozzo and Lucky come along, for them, that's like entertainment. It's almost like, you know, dinner theater or something. Suddenly, there's something happening, and they're very excited and want to engage. And, so. and after they, Pozzo and Lucky leave at one point, uh, Vladimir says, well, that passed the time. And Estragon, Estragon says, it would have passed in any case. It's, it's, a very, it's very nice. It's very light. Once again, you see that plainness, that simplicity of exchange, but it's quite profound also. Uh, it, it allows you to think a little bit about time and how it passes and wh- why it might pass more quickly sometimes than others. But it's, you know, it, it's a kind of, there's a kind of intelligence that's not at all exclusive. Uh, it's, uh, the address is very familiar, the language is very familiar, uh, and it nonetheless manages to get to something uh, uh, beyond the surface. So the play is full of that. It's full of very familiar language, very familiar scenes. The two of them, Vladimir and Estragon, they bicker all the time. Uh, they, <laughs> they argue uh, and so on. They, they look a bit like a married couple sometimes. They're also very affectionate with one another at moments. They need one another. I think people see in the, that couple, uh, and the fact that they're a couple, who are constantly on the stage, moving apart from one another and coming together again, as they do. Uh, Estragon spends the night, every night, in a ditch and where he gets beaten, but every morning he comes, or every day, every, every next day he comes back and finds his friend. And I, there's a, in Vladimir's sort of closing speech, he refers to Estragon as my friend, which I think is very moving. These are very close friends, and a good theatre director can can play with that and make that evident that, you know, in spite of the awful situation they're in, and perhaps because of the awful situation they're in, the bleakness, they need one another uh, in order to give themselves the impression that they exist, to use some words from the play.
0: What message do you find most nourishing from it, or maybe most supported? How do you convey this play to, to some of your students?
1: What I appreciate most about Beckett is is that kind of honesty in representing the human condition as it is, without uh, solutions uh, or remedies. There simply aren't any. It's not an optimistic play, but I think it's a hopeful play. Um, it, For example, just uh, I think we might mention that in the early 1950s, when the battle was still raging to understand this play and there were people who were for and people who were against and so on, Beckett received a letter from Germany from a prisoner who had gotten hold of the French text and translated the French text into German and staged Waiting for Godot, in the prison, with actors. Uh, And he wrote to Beckett to say that this had been a very successful event and could maybe Beckett come and and see the performance. And he said in the letter, you know, we understand this, that apparently the rest of the public doesn't, but any one of the incarcerated knows exactly what this is about, and it's about our experience of life. So there's one population... That sort of voted for Beckett and for this play, and wanted that and affirmed that. And I think they wouldn't have affirmed it if there was not they didn't see something affirmative in it.
0: What is hopeful about it? Is it that even these tramps and ditches, their humanity itself has a beauty and dignity, even in its most degraded form?
1: Uh, that's very, very. I think that's very accurate. Yes. They have a humanity and a dignity. It's very difficult to maintain. Uh, the, the play uh, is it's very... It's a, the physicality of the play is very interesting. Characters are falling down all the time, or almost falling, or staggering, or teetering, or tottering, or tripping, and so on. There's a movement towards the ground, as though maintaining the upright uh, station is something of, of a challenge so just to say that there is a recognition of how difficult it is to to be a human that part of our human dig- dignity is in the effort to remain upright and to uh you know to to manage with this this uh, very complicated thing that's been inflicted on us which is life
0: you've mentioned that just simply by being so widely staged of course it's touched millions of people down the years um, but but what could we what could we say about the way it influenced other artistic forms did it have a larger you know cultural impact that we can distinguish
1: it has uh very much influenced subsequent playwrights who were almost obliged to begin to write differently to abandon oh, abandon Old ways in the theatre that Beckett had shown to, to be shown to be old, shown to be uh, antiquated, and uh, and had in uh, Beckett had demonstrated this other possibility for the theatre. So playwrights like Tom Stoppard or Harold Pinter uh, were very influenced by him, or Edward Albee also. Uh, so a new kind of theatre was was born out of. Godot and Beckett's subsequent theatrical works. So it had an influence in the world of theatre itself. It had an influence far beyond that because the fact that so many people know the word Godot, waiting for Godot, and know what that means, uh, it's rather rare that a quote by you know, a fairly intellectual Irish, French language writer should be adopted by people who want to describe a situation that they know. If they're taking it to, it's like Waiting for, for Godot, they know what that means. And so they know that Beckett has produced that, possibly.
0: Waiting for Godot is famous as a play about nothing. But it has endured because it is, in fact, a play about life. For what is life but a sequential collection of waitings? Waiting for school to end. Waiting to find someone to love. Waiting to know what to do. Waiting to feel better. Waiting for money or recognition. And ultimately, the last waiting. Waiting for death. And yet, between all these waitings, we find meaning to continue on.
1: Possibly the most important word in Beckett's uh, entire oeuvre uh, is on, on, and it's a, play, it's a word that occurs multiple times in, in Godot. This idea of going on, of keeping on, uh, is close to the idea of not giving up. So it's not heroic. No one would say anybody in uh, Waiting for Godot is, is a heroic character, I think. But this idea of on, that the fact that they come together each day, it's not pleasant. There's all kinds of awful things. There's a great deal of violence in the play. because they come together again and again. And that idea of on, uh, which is very difficult, I, I, I can't go on, I must go on, I'll go on, as Beckett says. It, that, that that on is, is is faintly affirmative in my mind, and that, f- that faintly or not that's all that matters it, it, it does for me register uh, or or tip that balance away from uh, those who, who wish to see Beckett as a, you know an unredeemed complete pessimist, which he's really not uh, but no one's going to say he's an optimist but he there is that idea of Going on, keeping going, and so on. So I think that that's the affirmative note.
0: Ritlarge is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.